Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. All right. So, I guess I think most of you guys were here for the first session. Uh, you know, once again, we'll just kind of open the floor up to Steve. Uh, Sobriety 101 was something that uh, we in Nashville had uh, listened to some of the recordings and uh, thought it would be a good thing to bring to this conference and do a mini uh, Sobriety 101. And uh, it gives, uh, gives somebody with some good long-term sobriety the opportunity to go through the material with us and, and teach us, you know, a lot about how to how we can get sober by reading the material and, and, and understanding it better. So that, Steve, for sure. Thanks, Preston. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Um, uh, for those of you who weren't here this morning, I'm wearing the suit that I wore to my sentencing hearing in 2002. Um, I had a year of sobriety. I was convicted. Uh, I'd already pled guilty to statutory rape, and um, that's really um, been a very significant influence on the trajectory of my life. Uh, since then, but, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, that if um, um, I had continued in, in the path that I was on, that I'd be dead or uh, uh, spend the rest of my life in prison or all of the above, I don't know. Um, I'm grateful to be here. And um, it's, it's great to be back in Nashville. I got sober in Nashville um in 2001 well i was actually 90 days sober when i got out of treatment and moved to nashville um, from east tennessee and um the my sponsor at the time bought me this suit at that dealer's over there uh green hills mall and um um and well, it was in nashville that i met um uh all of the you know friends started making the friends that i have today uh, in SA, uh, um, and, and also met a man, um, at, at a, at an AA group in Nashville who, who took me through the big book, um, in a way that was very powerful for me and for the men that I've sponsored since then. Um, I've, uh, and so, and so, um, the Sobriety 101 actually was named by, by Jim, um, who, um, was, uh, came up here with me this weekend. And he, and if y'all were here on Friday night, he was one of the, um, the, the the folks up there uh, speaking, um, and um, and it grew out of a practice that my um, my old AA sponsor Scott uh, used to do. We would have a meeting once a month at Scott's house with all the men that he sponsored, um, and that was about twenty five of us with an average sobriety of seventeen years. I think I had like four or five years. I was one of the babies. And we would have a two-hour potluck dinner followed by a two-hour book study. And some of the best best um, meetings, uh, if you want to call them that, wasn't really a meeting because it wasn't open to to anyone. It was a but it was a group of of men with a, a, that were all you know sponsored by Scott and 
And and so I started doing something similar with my sponsees. We'd put a Stouffer's lasagna in the oven and and then uh, spend about half an hour eating an hour uh, going through the book. And and around that time, I had been sponsoring a few guys uh, for a while, but none of them were staying sober. And um, and then once I started getting this solution from the big book and sh- sharing it with others, not only was it changing, deepening my spiritual connection, uh, I started seeing the men I was sponsoring uh, get sober and the lights come on in their eyes. And, and from that time, I, I have a man uh, in Murfreesboro. I don't say I, I have a sponsee in Murfreesboro who's got 12 years of sobriety, and he's got a sponsee who's got uh, I'm sorry, he'll have 12 years. No, he'll have 13 years this year. He's got a sponsee that has three weeks less, less sobriety than he. Um, and, and he's got about a dozen other men that he's sponsoring and, and they are sponsoring men. And, and I don't know how far down it goes. Um, God, God alone knows, but that's the way he does. And that's the way it came to me. And that's the way I want to pass it on. And so this sobriety 101 was kind of like an idea of trying to make something like that available. Um, uh, in a more, uh, you know, outside of our sponsorship lineage for anybody who wanted it. So, um, this morning I talked about the, the disease. I talked about the relationship. Uh, there's places in our literature that, that, that make it clear the relation, special relationship we have to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know, I'm not an expert on 12 step fellowships or anything. I just only have a few others that I have experience with, but as far as I know, um, we're a little bit unique in the way that we have approved for use in our fellowship, the AA literature, as it is, you know, unedited, um, uh, for for understanding the program recovery that AA has, and then we have our own literature for learning how to apply that 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 same spiritual solution to our somewhat different problem uh, of lust, and um, I, I think you know one of the things that that is useful for me to realize. Uh, since I was in AA for some time, I never went to an AA meeting where the topic was what is alcohol, and I've I've never been to an AA meeting where um, the, or or had a discussion with someone in AA where where they're asking how do I know whether I've had a drink of alcohol or not, and and um, you know there are some notable differences. Uh, a friend of mine uh, that I haven't heard from in a long time, but I, I think he's still around and I think he's doing okay. Um, he would sometimes read a, a page in the, in the in the big book, page 31, um, where it says, here are some of the methods we have tried, drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, et cetera, and so forth. And he, he was uh, uh, substitute. He tried to convert that into SA lingo. He'd say, here are some of the methods we have tried, uh, only masturbating, limiting the number of times of masturbating, never masturbating alone, never masturbating in the morning, et cetera. It's very funny. Um, but I think it, it, it calls attention to the fact that, you know, only masturbating at parties. Um, <laughs> but but it, call, it calls attention to some of the differences um, between um, the alcoholics, uh, uh, you know, ism and ours. Um, uh, but but um, the solution. I'm very grateful um, uh, that, that following the instructions in the big book has has really helped me a lot. And so one of the things I just kind of like to share a little bit of a flavor um, for for uh, of that. Um, 
the way the way the book is explained to me, and, and it's, uh, our time is so short, I won't go through the whole thing. But there are instructions in this book that have been kind of disguised. Instead of telling me I need to do something, it's just been turned around. The language has been turned around to say. Well, we did something, and this is the result we got. And so if I want the solution in here, I need to find those things where they did an action, and I need to flip around, and I need to, to take it as an instruction to me. And that's what thoroughly following the path is, and, and that's what I need to do if, if I want to get the results that they got. And so um, actually, there's no um, uh, clear-cut instructions uh, for steps one and two in this book uh, that I'm aware of, if you find some, please let me know, and I'll be. Um, I'm learning new stuff about this book all the time. As 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 I said this morning, I'm not an expert, just a satisfied customer. But um, the um, instructions that are really clear begin at step three on page sixty, um, and there are these three pertinent ideas that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. That's part of step one. Probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. I think that's also part of step one, just uh, seeing that I'm hopeless and, and that God could and would if he were sought. And that's related to step two and having this idea that, that, that even though all human power, uh, I'm hopeless, there is there is a possibility um, uh, for me to, to get what I need to, to be relieved um, enough to where I can at least um, live with this condition of alcoholism. And it says being convinced we were at step three, we've got to be convinced of these three things. And and I don't, you know, know sometimes some of the men I sponsored have not necessarily been convinced that God could and would help them if they were sought. They had some ideas about God, weren't sure God existed, or felt that maybe if he existed, he was not uh, going to want to help them. Um, but the book in various places tells me if I'm willing to act as if I believe these things, then that's enough to make a beginning. And and so um, the next the next instruction is down in that first paragraph. It says uh, we need to be convinced that any life run on self will can hardly be a success on that basis. And my sponsor Scott would always stop. He would interrupt and say, "Okay, on what basis? What are they talking about?" Got to look at this and, and understand what it really means. And he just talked about running life on self-will. They're talking about the basis of self-will. Um, we're almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. And that's the thing in self-will. I have these motives. I have these reasons I'm I'm doing things. I have a justification. And and sooner or later, you know, what I want and what I should be doing are not going to be the same. I mean, if they were always the same, I don't think I'd have any problems. If, if what I wanted always lined up with what I'm supposed to be doing, I'd never have any problems. I'd always do what I'm supposed to do because I want to. And and that's the best that I can do, as it turns out. That's the, be- the, the, the best results get when I do what I, what I should do. Um, but there's that conflict. And the motive comes in whenever the good motive comes in when I am explaining to myself why I'm doing this instead of that. Um, well, you know, I'm not the fastest car on the road. Um, or, you know, this is really important and I don't want to be late. If something bad could happen if I were late. I might let somebody down. I've got a good reason, you know. My, 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 you know, my mother really needs me. So driving 95 is okay. And, um, so it, it, the motive, in, when I'm living on self-will, this motive or this justification is my excuse for violating the principle that I should be conforming to. 
And it goes on to show uh, here that, that there's a, this actor who wants to run the whole show. And there is there is a, uh, someone whose job description is to run the whole show, but that not the actor. It's the director. And so he goes on to show, you know, this actor is not accepting the role assigned to him. He's trying to play a different role. He's trying to do somebody else's job. He is, and he's got good reasons. He wants the show to be great. He wants everybody to be happy, including himself. Uh, and he tries these things, and, you know, he, he often, you know, obeys spiritual principles when he's kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. Although if I'm kind, patient, generous, modest, and self-sacrificing with a motive, is it really kind? Is it really self-sacrificing when it's just a strategy for getting what I want? And then when that doesn't work, I'm just perfectly willing to try the mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest approach. Um, see, what well, I'm just trying my best to, to get what I think needs to happen to happen with good motives. And, and it doesn't work, so I try harder. I try to exert myself some more. It's not coming off very well, according to my uh, superior critical judgment. And so I'm more demanding or gracious. Um, and it says, what is his basic trouble? That word basic is related to based or basis. And yeah, that is my trouble. It's a trouble of my basis. Is he really not a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Resting satisfaction and happiness means pulling like rest, rest like Russell, like by force, pulling it out. That's what he wants. He wants satisfaction and happiness. I, that's what I want. And 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 he is a del, has the delusion that he can do this if he manages well. Manage, as in ma- unmanageable. I've been told that unmanageable is like undrivable. If a car is undrivable. Improving my driving skills will not help the situation. Taking no-dose so I'm more alert does not help. If the car is undrivable, the problem is not how well I drive. The problem is that I'm trying to drive it at all. And that's the problem in, in, um, in the basis of self-will. It's not that I'm not managing well enough. It's that I'm trying to manage in the first place. That's not my role. Um, so, um, there's a number of things, this description, you know, page 62, um, uh, selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. The root is underground. It nourishes the tree. It gives it structural support, but it's hidden unless the tree is above the ground. You know, the root is there by what's above the ground. That's what's showing. That's what the manifestation is. And it'll say later on in the book. But we have to look at the common manifestations of this problem, which is self. And, you know, start looking at resentment, fear, uh, and sexual misconduct and other character defects. Um, but, but it says here on page 62 again, um, you know, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. That word based again, basis, that's the basis. And that's what a basis of self-will is. Running life on the basis of self-will is 
This is my basis for making decisions, decisions based on self. How am I going to get what I want? That's what causes my problems is that basis for decisions. So the third step decision is actually a decision to change my basis for making decisions. It's to change the way I make decisions. What questions do I ask when I make a decision? How am I going to get what I want? What's going to happen if this happens? If only, that word if only um, comes up, you know, if only this would happen, if only that would happen, I would be okay. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. So that word just keeps coming up. Um, and, and it reminds me of a story where they use the word foundation instead of basis. But it says, if I do such and such and such, then it's like building my house on sands. And if I do such and such, it's like building my house on rock. There's two different bases here. And the such and such, I, I, I would remember that story, but I always forget what the such and such was. And the way it, the way it is in the in the the original that I heard is that if you hear my words and obey them, you are like somebody who builds his house on a rock. And if you hear my words and do not obey them, you know, sand. So that's the same message for me in this book as it's in that in that other book. You know, this is about my basis. If I am going to change my basis for living, I've got to stop letting self be the manager and let God be the director. There's specific instructions on page 62 and 63. Quit playing God. Um, there's a prayer. Um, and I've got certain assignments that I've been taught to give that I, that I did, um, with my, with uh, my, uh, AA, first AA sponsor and, and that I give to my sponsees. Um, but over here on page 68, there's kind of like a bookend to that whole idea um, where it says it's talking about fear. And um, Bill talked about this earlier this morning. Um, and it's talking about the way fears are kind of the side effect of this attempt to live life the way I think, you know, to try to get things to do. But the harder I try to get things to do the way, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I do that because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. If I don't get what I want, I won't be okay. But the harder I try to make things change to get what I want, the more afraid I get. And 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 the reason is, is that I'm making those things my security. I'm making those things my higher power. Whatever it is in this world is temporary. And and if I put my trust in something that's not going to last, well, I'm 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 always going to have that fear. Perhaps there is a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting on and relying upon God. And whenever we get to this line, when I'm reading, the reading this and I'm interrupting, just like Scott did with me, they say, on a different basis, I say, different than what? And if they were paying attention, sometimes they do. A lot of times they're like, huh? Um, we go back to page 62, uh, 60 where it says the basis of running my life on self. Well, these are the two bases. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite self. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. That's what an actor does. He plays the role that the director gives him. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So that means that if I do what I think he would have me do, it doesn't say if I do what he would have me do. 
because I don't get a telegram, and my ability to know what he would have me do suffers from many decades of lack of practice. And so I, I didn't begin this, nor would I say today I'm, I'm an expert in knowing what he wants me to do. I'm a whole lot better than I used to be, though. But when I do my best to find out what he wants me to do and then do it, and then humbly rely on him, which means I keep my eyes open. I may have made a mistake. God, I think you wanted me to come to Nashville this weekend. You know, I think you wanted me to be on page 68 at this moment. Whatever it is, um, if I'm doing what I think he would have me do and listening, uh, you know, for looking at the results and seeing, is it working? Then does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Calamity is about one of the worst things that can happen. Uh, and and my Bill told me when we went through this uh, that word calamity puts it historically this this was written during wartime you know the, the world World War was uh, two was uh, get, getting uh, there was already fighting in Europe when this was published um, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity if I can meet calamity with serenity then it, it must be possible for me to to to, to be centered with the other. <laughs> Other other events in my life too. Um, uh, how much time was that so far, Preston? One fifty-five. And so we're going till quarter after. Quarter after, yes. Okay. So I want to tie this back to something on page thirty-six, uh, and more about alcoholism. And uh, just to kind of, I think we got time to do this and and just slow down, give myself a, uh, a chance. Could I have a volunteer? Does anybody got their big book with them? I'm pulling it up on my phone. <laughs> uh, oh, no, we got one back there. It's got a real, a real live a big book. Um, how about, uh, is it Tommy? Tommy. Um, well, okay, <laughs> l l let me just give a little preamble to save some time. We're talking about a guy named Jim. He lost, Jim. He, lo he lost his business to drinking and... Now he's working as a salesman for the business he used to own. And he started the program of recovery, but then he kind of lost his focus. And it says all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And he starts relapsing. And they're, they're working with him. Uh, and he, he understands this is not good. He can't drink successfully. But then he had another relapse again. So, so, Right there at the top of page 36, Tommy, would you would you start reading? Yeah, he, he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly what, how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I'd get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the month. I was sober. I sat down at the table, ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. Ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. 
I ordered a whiskey and poured it in the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt assured that I was, as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thus started one more journey into the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of a foolish idea that he could take whiskey only if he mixed it with milk. Whatever. Thank you, Tommy. Um, yeah. Um, so this is this is um, Jim, and let's go back to the top of page thirty-six and and, and look at that. It, uh, he he's telling he he's telling you how he decided to get from where he was on Tuesday morning to where to where he was uh, mixing that milk and whiskey. Um, and he came to work on a Tuesday morning. You know, he felt irritated. He had a few words with the boss, nothing serious. According to who? According to Jim. Yeah, according to Jim. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speculate uh, that he did not call a sponsor or someone to discuss this with to find out that it was nothing serious. He just relied on his own uh, assessment of the situation. Then I decided to drive into the country. How, what was the basis for that decision? Think he was praying and asking what God would have him do? Probably not. Um, he felt hungry, so he stopped. That's a good motive to stop at a roadside place where they have a bar. But I have no intention of drinking. Why would why would I, why would he say that? Why would he say that? Um, maybe he really had no awareness of what was really happening in his nervous system, that that restless, irritable discontent was pushing him closer and closer to that moment of sanity where all he has to do is have the thought of the first drink and he's off. Another decision, you know, where he decided to have another glass of milk. and he's But he's doing all these things. I did this. I stopped here. I've decided this. Uh, I had that, you know, suddenly the thought crossed my mind. He's not the subject of that sentence anymore. He doesn't say, I thought. He says, the thought walked across my mind. It's like I walked across this room a moment ago. You know, it's like it's a passive space, and I'm the actor. The thought's the actor here, and he's just, his mind is just an open space. And that's how much resistance he has to the idea. As he's doing this, I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. Whose voice is that? God. That's God's voice. And it's also the voice of the part of his brain that knows better. And they have biologically shown that there's a difference between the wiring of an addict brain and the wiring of a non-addict brain. You can have a cocaine abuser who's non-addict. And he'll still get triggered in a euphoric recall if he sees certain things on, on, on a, you know, photographs of crack files or whatever. And the, the brain centers in his uh, dopamine system will still uh, light up, you know, 
But in the attic, there's something else that happens, and that, that's that the frontal lobe goes dark at the same time. And so that's where the mental defense goes. It gets switched off. The restless, irritable, and discontent, the lonely, inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid turns off my connection to the God voice, the, the thing that God put in my brain to help me learn not to put my hand on a hot stove. And um, so that has gone to sleep. Um, but that's the God voice, the sense of, you know, trusting and relying upon God. And, and I heard a story that uh, is actually in a movie uh, with a Native American, you know, uh, very significant part of the of the of the story was a Native American themes and 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 there's a conversation in there and uh, one man asks another man, you know, said there's two dogs fighting inside of you, one good, one evil, which one uh, wins? And the man replies, whichever one I feed the most. And that's the way this works for me. There's two voices inside of me. There's the voice of my disease and self, and there's that kind of pattern in my nervous system that just wants the next drink. And it has a voice. It has an energy. And then there's there's the God voice. There's the part of me that knows better. Um, and, and there's all the things that he's g- given. And, and I feed one voice or the other by listening to it and following uh, what it would have me do. And so he's been following, he's been listening to that other voice. If there are two people in a room and one, it, both of them are saying, come closer. And I follow one and I get closer to the one and I get further from the other. And the voice that I get closer to is louder to my ear. And the voice that is I'm further from is quieter to my ear. And this is what happens here is that he gets further and further away from God's voice and closer and closer to where all that disease has to do is just say, boo, and he's gone. So the the program of recovery is the same for me in reverse. If I do my best, to listen for God's voice and follow what he would have me do, then I get one step closer to him and one step further away from that other voice. It doesn't mean, I've heard people say, no matter how far down the road I've gone, I'm just as far from the ditch. And there's there's a sense to which that is true. Um, I I need not, I should, I must not become cocky or overconfident. But there's also a sense that the more I do this, the more steady I get straight down the road and, and you know, my deviations are smaller and smaller. And, and there's a sense in which I'm a lot, lot safer on the road. Um, so um, the um, last thing I want to say about this business, I think, is just an experience that happened to me in 2008. Um, I was in Memphis. I had been sober about seven years. I was following some instructions. I was doing the best that I knew to have, um, you know, to, 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 to listen for God's voice um, and, and, and do it. I was involved in a lot of service. I was sponsoring guys. Um, and I was on the sex offender registry. And I was afraid a lot that people would find out, my neighbors would find out, that I wouldn't be able to make enough money to live. Um, and I was surrendering these fears. There's instructions on how to do with that. And I was um, much more, it's still amazing and miraculous to me how, how much 
uh, how I was free a lot, a lot of the time from those fears. But they were making the laws more strict, and they they were doing things that were scaring me anymore. I was gonna even more. I was gonna have to get a a special mark put on my driver's license to identify me as a sex offender, and there were these other restrictions. And during this time that I was having this fear. I got a call from a man that I met about a year earlier because he had gotten arrested for something similar to what I had done. And and his sponsor had told him, you know, maybe you want to talk to Steve. And and we got connected and he had stayed sober. And a little bit after his first year of sobriety, he got a call from his attorney. And the attorney said that the prosecution was offering him a deal. If he pled guilty, he would only have to serve 15 years in prison. And his attorney was recommending that he accept that deal because if he did not, he would go to trial and almost certainly get 30 years. So my friend was really, really scared. And I said, and he didn't know that this attorney was really looking out for him. And I said, find another attorney who's a member of the, of the fellowship and ask him. And he did it. And a few days later, he called me back and said that he talked to the, uh, uh, another attorney who told him the same thing. And so I knew that I was supposed to be in the courtroom. Um, I didn't want to be. I can think of a million reasons why it would be a better use of my time to be somewhere else. I had a lot of good motives. I didn't even have to call my sponsor and ask him. I know what he would say. Yeah, I'm supposed to be in that courtroom. That's what God would have me do. And so I went, and I watched my friend deliberate in anguish for several hours with his family, his attorney, pace up and down the hall. One moment, he stopped in front of me, and he looked at me about as close as I am to Preston, and just looked into my eyes. Didn't say a word. I could see that he hadn't slept a wink the night before. There was rings under his eyes, and he was afraid and desperate and didn't know what to do. And the only thing I could do and that moment was not look away. It took all my power not to look away. And to just say with my eyes and with my face and with my body, I'm here. And after a moment, he broke contact and kept walking. And and later he said, you know, I just don't know. I'm praying and I, I just don't, I can't hear anything, but I just don't see that I have any choice. Um, and he accepted the, he wanted to, he wanted to get 30 days to get a spare in order. And the judge said, no, you, you make your decision now. And that's it. And so he began serving 15 years in that day. And in that moment, I didn't realize it till I left the courtroom. In that moment, everything in my life changed. I no longer had to be on the sex offender registry. I got to be on the sex offender registry. Nothing had changed. 
but everything had changed. Now, my friends, has been in prison for 10 years. He has been sober for 11 years. I have stayed in touch with him by mail. I have been able to visit him a few times. The warden changed and said that I couldn't come anymore because of my record. But other people have visited him. He has not been able to get any an essay meeting started because of the prison administration, but he has done everything he can to be of service and to practice the principles that he learned before he went in. And I've never heard him complain. I've never heard him despair. His mother has died while he's in prison. His father has died. He has two daughters that were 13 and 15 when he went in. They're both out of college now, and he hasn't seen them in like six or eight years. That could be me, and my life is I cannot describe the gift that I received on that day when I was in that courtroom with him only because I was following instructions. Only because I had woken up that morning and decided that I wanted to carry out my decisions on the basis of what I thought God would have me do instead of the basis of what I would have me do. If I had been living on self-will, I would have missed the gift that I received in that courtroom, and I would have never known that I had missed that gift. I'm forever changed by that. This is not the only thing that I've experienced in this way. And one of the most dramatic for me, but I am convinced that in... 30-odd years or more of living life on the basis of self-will, there are many things that I missed that would have been available to me had I been willing to do what he would have me do. And I may never know what those things are, but I choose to believe that today, and I choose to believe that those things are going to continue to be available to me and to you if we show up and do our best to find what he would have us do. All the promises in the book, all the instructions in the book, I think, get down to that one thing. And so with that, I'm going to hush. Um, do we have any time left for questions or shares? We have about yeah, we have three or four minutes. We can okay. go a little bit longer if we need. Uh, okay. I'm going to say real quick that thank you for sharing so openly and honestly again. Uh, it was you. Sobriety 101, hearing your tapes that got me into the material and helped me to get sober. Uh, this go round in essay. And uh, there's one quote, and uh, my sponsees have heard me, pretty much all of them have heard me say it out of the big book, uh, page 429. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world, uh, you know, by mistake. And this is no mistake, you being here today. Us getting to do this together, so I really appreciate that. Thanks, Thank President. <laughs> so, for the open for you guys. Any questions? Maybe I, I'm, I'm Tom. Hey, Tom. Um, maybe I missed it, but you, you referred several times to that gift that you got when you went to court that day. Yeah. Was that the the gift that you got by just making that eye contact, that nonverbal contact with that man? It happened in that moment. Okay, and what was that? Before before that, I had been for about 
four, six weeks. I don't know. I, for a long time, I had been very afraid. And, and I think suddenly I had this feeling that I somehow was getting a raw deal with this whole sex offender business, being on the registry and these restrictions and, and how hard it was. And, and, and in that moment, I saw my, my, my perspective changed and what had previously been a source of fear was now a source of gratitude. And that was an awakening. I didn't know such a thing could exist before I experienced it. And that that's the other thing about these awakenings. Can you imagine trying to understand what an orgasm is like if you've never experienced one? <laughs> do, do, was, was your world changed by your for, first orgasm? I think mine probably was. You know? <laughs> okay. These awakenings that await us are things that we've never yet experienced and we cannot imagine what they're like. I mean, we can, but it's just, you know, having experienced that, I don't need to imagine it. I still can't really describe it. I know I can't explain it. All I can do is report it. But I believe there's more of those ahead if I stay on this path, and I believe they're 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 uh, available for all of us. So the fact that you realize that they didn't no, no, no. It was a change of that I have to be on the sex offender registry versus I get to be. Yeah. Thanks. My name is Mike Sexaholic. Hey, Mike. And uh, with your length of sobriety and the time that you've been in the program, um, I know in the AA Big Book it talks about God consciousness. What is that like for you today? Do you experience that? Yeah. Um, thanks, Mike. Um, the, the appendix at the back of the Big Book it talks about um, a spiritual experience and how different it is for each person I think is really important. Um, and I think it is different for each each person. But, but one thing that's been very important for me, and I uh, have come to learn that this is important for Bill as well, I had some early experiences in my life where I had, in a very primitive, maybe even pre-verbal way, a kind of God consciousness that is somehow lost. And and so for me, God consciousness is 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 similar. It's kind of like the mirror image or the photographic negative of lust consciousness. How did my consciousness of lust grow? It, you know, I had experiences and I sought more experiences. And the more I had experiences, I had a stash of memories that I would call upon to connect with lust and to try to get a deeper lust connection. And so for me, God consciousness is the same thing. I've gone through my life, and I, and I know people who can't find any memories in their childhood, and I don't, you know, it, it, but whatever is there, whatever I have that I can remember, using that as a spiritual stash to, to try to use it to fuel my search for a deeper connection with God. Sometimes I feel very connected, and I feel very awake. Other times I have this dryness where I feel cut off. But like I said, uh, or like I've heard, 
you know, the sun can go behind a cloud. It's still there. I may not see it. I may not be aware of it, but it's still there. And if I continue to act in the ways that y'all teach me and to follow the directions, I stay in this path where I keep coming back to this increasing God consciousness. It's different for everybody. But for me, one of the most profound things has been when I'm alone and I've got this old feeling that I've felt so many times before, this depression, this loneliness, this kind of this kind of soul pain. And yet it's like everything is dark inside, but there's a candle lit in the other room and it just makes a little glow that takes the sting out of the darkness. And I know even in my worst moment, there's this little light inside of me that can't be extinguished. And that awareness is like the exact reverse of what I used to have. On the best day when everything was going, there was this little bit of darkness. And I knew this dread, this deep dread, it was all going to come tumbling down. And now it's just flipped around. I like it a whole lot better this way. Hmm. Any other questions? If not, we'll shut it down and go down to the worship center. So thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you keep reminding me. I keep forgetting. <laughs> Somebody closes with a prayer of their own choosing. Whose Father? Our, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thanks, brother. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.